A tragic death on an Ontario farm leads to calls for more rights and safety requirements for migrant workers working under temporary foreign worker permits. Without status, you basically can do nothing. You have no access to healthcare and some other things you need to do. You can't even change your job. We need migrant workers to uh, you know, plant and harvest our food and then we kick them to the curb when we don't need them and they don't get the uh, rights that they need. They fill vital positions, a majority in agriculture, food and beverage manufacturing and home care. But are migrant workers being treated humanely? I was injured on the job. I am not getting any treatment. An open letter from Jamaican farm workers to their country's Ministry of Labour describes the program as systemic slavery listing poor housing, abusive bosses, and exposure to dangerous work conditions. And these aren't the first allegations against the program. The Jamaican Liaison Service, who's supposed to be our representative, tell us if you don't want to work, or if you refuse work, we have 100 guys in Jamaica to replace one guy's path. Workers don't speak out, even if injured, for fear of being sent home or not invited back to the program. A lot of the workers um, don't know, most of the workers probably don't know what is the process when you get injured. Uh, a lot of them because of fear of repatriation. Inspection systems set up for housing have fallen short. 88% of inspections could not demonstrate that um, the employer was protecting the health and safety of workers, it just leads you to conclude that it is a systemic problem. And the workers, far from home, don't know who to turn to for support. There's really nobody that is in between the employer um, and the worker. It's only the liaison office, the consulate, and normally they tend to favor the employer. This week on Context, migrant work, the true cost of labor. Welcome to Context, I'm Maggie John. As you saw off the top, the concerns around the conditions for migrant work and temporary foreign worker program have many concerned. Advocates say migrant farm workers are literally dying for our food. Syed Hassan is the executive director of Ontario's Migrant Workers Alliance for Change, uh, which is one of the voices that are making themselves heard on this issue. He joins me now. Thank you for joining us today, Syed. Thank you for having me. The Jamaican migrant farm workers, or a number of them in the Niagara area, wrote an open letter to Carl Samuda, Jamaica's labor minister, requesting more support in the face of what they call systemic slavery just days before a migrant worker died in Norfolk County. So, yet, what are the conditions farm workers in Ontario are working under? And is the Canadian government doing anything to protect them? So this letter was written by members of our organization. We are a membership-based organization uh, from the two farms that uh, Minister Samuda was about to visit. And in it, they described how they live in prison-like conditions. 
They talked about how uh, they're facing physical and verbal assault and abuse from their employers for uh, when the employer deems them not to having worked hard enough or long enough. Uh, they talked about how rats are eating their food, how they have to go to work in wet clothes because they don't have dryers. Uh, and they talked about uh, their housing and living and working conditions being uh, not just theirs, but also uh, in their conversations with others across the country, uh, they described it as systematic slavery. Now, the number one reason that this kind of abuse and exploitation takes place is because migrant farm workers, similar to other migrants, aren't able to protect themselves. They're not able to speak up against a bad boss uh, because doing so means that they may be deported, they may be made homeless, uh, they may not be able to earn another, uh, get another job because their work permits ties them to the employer and the employer has the, and they live in employer controlled housing. So the only way for people to have the power to protect themselves is having the same permanent resident status as each and every one of us. And that the Canadian government has not done uh, yet. And so in effect, nothing is happening to ensure that people are protected and that farm workers don't continue to die. Last year, the government introduced the Vulnerable Worker Open Work Permit Program. Does that address some of the concerns raised at all? Absolutely not. The Vulnerable Worker Open Work Permit Program is, first of all, incredibly difficult to access. Uh, you need lawyers, you need thousands of dollars, you need mountains of evidence. Uh, and even if you get this work permit, it's non-renewable. So you exit uh, a bad farm, you get an open work permit potentially for six to eight months, and then there's nowhere else for you to go but to leave the country. So it just delays your deportation for a little while. And for many people, that's not an option. They may have paid tens of thousands of dollars in recruiter fees to come work in this country. They've taken loans. Their kids are in school. Uh, they may not have economic opportunities back home. What we need is full and permanent immigration status for each and every person. Uh, these partial temporary mechanisms uh, simply do not deal with the scale of the human rights catastrophe that is Canada's immigration policy. And talk about the permanent status, because that has come up a number of times in our research and even in this conversation. You know, many of these migrant workers, from what I understand, are paying into EI, they're paying into CPP, they're here for eight to, seven to eight months out of the year. So why would it be important and maybe life-changing for these migrant workers if permanent status was an option? So... I mean, the important thing to understand is that permanent resident status is the mechanism through which you access all of the rights, whether it's labor rights and protections, whether it's universal healthcare, whether it's education, whether it's EI, CPP, the ability to be with your family. All of these basic rights that each and every one of us has is accessed through permanent resident status. Now, these people are already here. We're not talking about permanent residency as a way for people to live here permanently. There's this notion that citizenship grants you the ability to live here, but these people are already here. We're actually talking about, and it's not just farm workers, it's also undocumented people, care workers, refugees, so-called international students, 1.7 million people in the country, 1.7 million people, one in 23 people in our country don't have permanent resident status who are living in similar situations of abuse, violence, facing death. And this is a new thing. This It did not used to be like this. I mean, just over 20 years ago, there were only 60,000 work permits issued in the country. Now that number has increased to 600,000. There has been this, Canada is effectively a revolving door temp agency where migrants are bought, used, abused, and spat out. And all of those rights that we are being denied can only be accessed through permanent resident status. 
Because even if you do have rights, you can't assert them because doing so will result in reprisals. Mm -hmm. So that's why we're talking about permanent resident status. Okay, so to protect our rights. Okay. Thank you so much, Syed Hassan, for your time today. Thank you for having me. Jamaican Labour Minister Carl Samuda came to Canada just days after receiving a letter from migrant workers describing deplorable living and working conditions. Minister Samuda held a virtual press availability after his visit. Context producer Hannah Vanderkoy attended that presser and joins me now. Hey, Hannah. Hey. So tell me about what uh, Minister Samuda had to say about the complaints and the letter. That's right. So this letter was sent to Minister Samuda and it was also sent to the Jamaican Observer and they released some excerpts. So in terms of living conditions, let me read. It says, we are living in a first world country, but at both these farms, rats are eating our food. We do not have clothes dryers. So when it rains, we're forced to wear cold, wet clothing to work. We live in crowded rooms and have zero privacy. There are cameras around the house. So it feels like we are in prison. And so Minister Samuda visited these farms and he actually, he stuck up for them. Here's what he had to say. It was totally inconsistent with my experience. Now I, I visited nine locations, uh, uh, seven locations and nine farms. And at no stage of my visit did I experience some of what I saw described in a piece of correspondence that passed over my desk. Wow. So uh, we've heard just from Syed recently, just uh, previously, that uh, there have been complaints of inhumane conditions for these workers. What did Minister Samuda say about that? That's right. So aside from the living conditions, they're also talking about their work conditions. So they said, we are treated like mules and punished for not working fast enough. We are exposed to dangerous pesticides without proper protection. Our bosses are verbally abusive, swearing at us. They physically intimidate us, destroy our property, and threaten to send us home. And so Minister uh, Samuda, they, they, while he did say that Jamaican workers demand mutual respect, he did ultimately again stick up for the employers. Here's what he had to say. I found that by and large, the owners stroke farmers were very cordial, very supportive of the program, very uh, at times emotionally attached to the Jamaican workers, appreciative of their abilities, appreciative of their, of the very rhythm of the people. Now there are liaisons that are supposed to work with the workers if there are complaints, but we've heard that the liaison are sometimes hard to find and not necessarily on the side of the workers. What have you learned about that? Yeah, so these liaison workers actually work for the government of the of the country where these migrant workers come from. So in this case, Jamaica, and they're supposed to be available all the time. But uh, in the letter, it says when we call our liaison officers for help, they do not respond to us or worse, they take our boss's side and put a red mark next to our name. So we are not hired back anywhere next season. The fear is what stops us and our fellow migrant workers from speaking up about our rights as workers and humans. And, and so we hear this time and time again, this fear of speaking up. And so I asked uh, Minister Samuda, like, is there something that should change in the system so that there's just this more open way of, of voicing complaints? And here's what he had to say. I did not find anywhere where there was any inhibiting characteristic in any of the owners that would cause workers to feel intimidated by speaking out. The program, as long as they do their job, 
is self-protecting. And they would express themselves in addition. They know they have access to the liaison office. All they have to, they're one telephone call away. It's definitely a lot of defensive uh, uh, feelings by Minister Samuda. You've also reached out to the Canadian government because that's where the buck really stops as well. What did they have to say? Yeah, so they said they are looking into these complaints. They are um, working with the provincial government who works with, with the workplace complaints. And they also said that they're strengthening the program. And so some of, some of the ways are further inspections and mandatory training, leveraging a tip line and, and expanding it so that it has more, um, more languages available, as well as increasing support for migrant workers and organizations. I also asked Minister Qualtro um, about this fear of speaking out because this, this was just really reoccurring uh, and, and a couple other questions and, and they did not get back to me. Thanks, Hannah. And we'll be following this story in the weeks to come. Well, recently I visited a church in the Niagara region that is committed to befriending migrant workers in that part of the country, many from the Caribbean, and the bond has grown deep. What is it like being a migrant worker in Canada? Well, good question. As I said, it's good for me because I didn't know nothing else to turn to. It's very hard. But to make two ends meet, sometimes I have to make sacrifice. Jesse has been working in Canada as a migrant agricultural farm worker for over 10 years. We have changed his name and withheld his identity to protect him. We met him outside Southridge Community Church, a group that has invested in befriending and creating a place of belonging for migrant workers working and living in neighboring farms in the Vineland area. Nate Dirks is the action pastor here. So Nate, tell me about the space that we're in. Yeah, so this is our church. This is Southridge Vineland. And this specific space is our thrift shop that we have that our friends in the migrant farm worker community are able to come in here after hours and find uh, used clothing and footwear and dishes and suitcases and just the things that our friends have expressed a need for. Uh, but it's sometimes hard for them to be able to access just where they're living and the times that they're working. And this is just a, a part of the way that we're using this space to serve the needs that have arisen. It's connected to our legal clinic uh, where we have legal professionals come in here and serve our friends and help them with all the questions that they have so that they're able to actually get free and confidential legal advice. And then further down where we have our health clinic where they're able to actually be served with their health care needs. Each year, more than 60,000 offshore workers come to Canada to work on Canadian farms for upwards of seven to eight months. And most recently, an open letter written by a group of migrant workers who describe their treatment as systemic slavery, highlighting unfair conditions and marginalization. Issues Nate and volunteer Karen Buller have heard and seen firsthand. For a lot of our friends, some of the living conditions are pretty challenging. And so they'll live in a space where, you know, over the course of the year, they're, they're in, a, in a hot, uh, you know, tin-roofed, really roasting kind of uh, environment where, you know, they're coming home at the end of the day and it's just, it's too hot and it's a, it's a challenging place to, to fall asleep and to really get a healthy rest. And sometimes they'll come back at the end of, or at the beginning of a season, and it's sort of a, a space that hasn't been cleaned or touched, and it's maybe, maybe rats are, have infested it. And we've had some of those situations where there's been a, a rat's nest in an oven as they've come back to, 
you know, after a plane ride to start a new season, and this is the house that they're expected to live in. I see you getting emotional when when you hear about some of the um, the the way that some of your friends are being treated on some of these farms. How do you feel? It's really hard. It upsets me, um, and I want to just jump in and make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to be, I have to tread carefully because sometimes jumping in isn't the right thing because it might put their job or their situation at risk. While some have said the claims of systemic slavery are an exaggeration, Jesse says the claims of deplorable living conditions are true. Some of these conditions here, some of them will call and say, boy, sometimes all 10 of us have to do one shower. We have one stove. We have one fridge. Some of them say they have to, like, their dwelling places there, they have to leave, go there to get a shower in a little place. Some of them say it's so terrible. A system, Nate says, is hard to navigate if you're a migrant worker. Some farmers are great and they really are going to notice the fact that the guys on their farm are, are not having an amazing experience or that they're experiencing marginalization. But not all farmers are going to be able to have that awareness. Not all farmers have that uh, that same sense of sort of the human dignity of, of our friends who are here. And even within that, our system is set up in such a way that where the fact that our friends are coming here and they're tied with their contract to a specific farm, to one farmer, their contract isn't here at large to work, and it happens to be this farm. That it's, it's specifically tied to one farm. And so that means that, that person who's working here as a migrant farm worker is very much aware of the fact that this one individual, this one employer, holds their financial future in their hands. And so that creates a gap there. It's a gap that, according to Jesse, has caused some to lose their jobs. Even if they're sick, there is a sense of fear. If you're sick, like I saw one guy, he had diabetes, and he had to admit in a hospital in Burlington. And Boston will take him back the next year. He had to go to, he's in U.S. somewhat on the farm same way. And I see a lot of why this thing hard to talk. I see stuff going on where if you're sick, they don't even interest about you. But they only need healthy people to come and do their work. A lot of the time that our friends would find that if, if there's, there's a healthy relationship between themselves and the farmer, then that's possible. Mm. But for a lot of our friends, even if it's a really great uh, employer who just really cares about them, the way that our system is set up is such that there's, there kind of has to be suspicion because it's a single employer that holds their employment. The moment that they get released from their job, they don't get to look for another job in Canada. Their social insurance number is done and they don't get to, to have another chance to get another job. They get sent back and at that point they would have to go back into the waiting list and it's iffy whether they'd ever be able to come back again. A prime reason why Nate and his team opened up a health clinic in the basement of the church to help. A resource, Jesse says, has saved lives. If it wasn't for the church, some of we guys maybe would have died already. It seems like you've created a sanctuary here. I mean, that's the hope. Yeah. I mean, the hope is that there'd be able to be safe spaces, that they'd be able to, to, to feel free, to, to get to know each other, to, to be able to network together, and really to feel like, oh, I'm actually seen, I'm a part of this community, I'm valued. I have friends and neighbors who love me, and to have that sense of mutuality. And so we hope that it feels like a sanctuary, and for us the intention is to increase that. The, the, the thought on our part as well is, as followers of Jesus who are in every community here in Ontario, if there's migrant farm workers or not, there's going to be churches everywhere that 
there should be sanctuary. There should be the opportunity for us to, as a, as a body of Christ, as a community, as, uh, as just churches at large, that we'd be able to just provide a network of places that just would really feel safe, would really feel comfortable, that would be safe for migrant farm workers, that farmers would be able to appreciate that the, the, the men who are working, men and women working on their farms are well supported and they're able to bring their best selves to the work that they're doing. And so, yeah, the hope would be that we could increasingly become more and more of a sanctuary, but also that there'd be other people who'd be inspired to do the same thing. Coming up, the Q panel is back, Colin, Calvin and Renee weigh in on the real cost of labor and why a developed country like Canada continues to allow the mistreatment of foreign workers in this country. As we've discussed throughout the show, it is a program that has been around since the 70s. The Temporary Foreign Worker Program has sold as an opportunity to hire foreign workers to fill gaps in the workforce temporarily. Still, some have called the conditions that foreign workers live in demoralizing and inhumane. Critics of the program say workers need permanent residence status in order to be protected. Well, we're wel welcoming back Colin Toffelmeyer and Calvin Forbes for another season. And Julia Beasley is away today. So Renee James, who, if you tuned in last week, is joining us this season and sitting in. So let's dive right in. No one is questioning the need for the program. It's a win-win for all countries involved. The number of permits uh, the federal government issued to Quebec alone, Quebec employers alone, for temporary foreign workers increased 133%. But is the treatment of migrant farm workers getting the attention it deserves. Renee? Uh, Maggie, certainly not. Um, there was a media spotlight, Sean, uh, during the thick of pandemic days when, you know, conditions were highlighted because migrant workers, certainly in the Windsor area, um, were coming down with COVID. And in fact, there were several migrant workers died. Um, of COVID. So certainly there was welcome attention paid and a spotlight shone on conditions. Um, but I think there are larger um, issues and, and uh, larger truths at stake. Um, I think more context setting needs to be done in our media conversation, in our conversations as a whole. Um, I think we forget that agriculture is a billion dollar industry in this country. Canada ranks in the top 10 of, of nations who export uh, agricultural products. And guess what? Um, workers from Jamaica, from Mexico, from other Caribbean countries are responsible for picking um, those very products. So let's start with um, a, a forensic look at the language with which we describe um, those workers. Mm -hmm. um, and let us also look deeply at how they are treated, how they are housed, and, uh, and indeed what their rights are. Yeah. Um, and there are several things that I applaud about the changes and the policies that are coming into play. But I, I think it's a good start and there's so much more we need to do. You know, advocates for migrant workers are calling for a permanent residency, which would give migrants access to health care and the ability to leave their jobs if an employer was abusing them. Immigration <coughs> Minister Sean Fraser just released a plan, but a path to permanent residency for foreign uh, workers, temporary foreign workers, is not included. Is this something that the government should be actively working on? Colin? Well, when we think about workers in our country, we tend to assume that they have certain kinds of systemic protections, mm. uh, protections given by unions, protection given by various government agencies. Uh, why would we want to uh, bring 
many, many people into our country to do essential labor, as Renee said, things that we really need people to do, but then not assume that we should also grant them some form of systemic protection. Now, whether that is um, uh, some kind of immigration status that's formalized, whether it's a specific program that's designed just for temporary foreign workers. I mean, I'm personally open to lots of policy solutions, but I think the underlying assumption has to be workers need formalized protection and formalized supports like healthcare. Uh, and if we are not giving those, then we really need to look at the basic ethical foundation of a program like this. Yeah, well said. You know, in response uh, to issues raised, the government has said that they're strengthening workplace inspections, expanding anonymous tip lines, and providing services in multiple languages. And yet I spoke to a migrant worker that said, you know, they're afraid to go to their liaison who's supposed to work for their benefit, supposed to protect them. Is this enough, Calvin? It's not enough, but it is a step forward. And uh, it's hard on the sidelines uh, to, to really grapple with what's fair, what's not fair, and, and what action should I be you know, lobbying for or what action should I effectively be practicing uh, in relationship with these guys. Um, but we have to you know, keep championing uh, what we can keep serving the way that we can uh, and keep you know lobbying for the change um, until we are able to see some of the things that we are looking for sometimes our helping might hurt right and so staying within the lanes is tough but we got to keep trying it's interesting that you said that calvin because I, I spoke to one woman who works very closely with migrant workers out of a church and she said essentially the same thing she's grown very close with these men but will take their lead on what to do next so this is my question what is the role of the church we met as i said you know i covered one church that has actually essentially reached out and uh, significantly so and well done uh, by reaching out to migrant workers in the area, creating a safe space for them in a church setting. Is that the role of the church? Of course, proximity plays yep. um, a huge part in, 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 in this, this aspect of the conversation. Um, but I do know in some of the churches in my denomination, um, uh, church is great at offering community, isn't it? And a, a key part, a foundation um, to all of this is the fact that these men, primarily men, are coming up and living fairly isolated lives. Um, that's why there's a sense of urgency around all of this. And so I think churches that are proximal to farms um, uh, to these warehouses, to greenhouses, these bunkers need to, uh, I would challenge you and invite you to, to step out, reach out, do what church does best, um, relate, build community, um, invite these men into worship um, and, and see what happens. Um, and from that, um, become advocates. I mean, churches do advocacy work quite well. Um, um, think about how this these sorts of programs that you can do sort of reach out into sort of sponsorship for families um piggyback on some of the policies and the plans that are going to be put in place i mean there's so much that that churches and denominations can do 
so well said. I think, uh, you know, one other item that Southridge Church, was, which is a church that we just highlighted, had said is even just being uh, mindful of who you vote for. And as Christians, being mindful of who we vote for and making sure that are, are the advocacy points, are the points that we're really concerned with being echoed by those that we are putting in office. Thanks again, Colin, Calvin, and Renee for a great conversation today. The choice to leave your home for eight months out of the year to ensure a steady income for your family is not an easy decision. Still, for thousands of men and women who enter this country each year, hired to do jobs we Canadians don't feel the need to do, they have become essential to the success of our country. What do they ask for in return? For us, Canadians, to uphold our commitment to treat people fairly and humanely, to have a clean place to sleep, and safe conditions to live and work. Safety, it's a standard we hold to the rest of the world. How about ourselves? After all, the golden rule says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33 to 34 says, do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. Maybe instead of asking ourselves about the cost, we need to ask how we can do better. Thank you for watching. Let us know what you think of today's topic. Join the conversation. Thank you for your ongoing support of Crossroads, a supporter-funded nonprofit organization and member of the Canadian Centre for Christian Charities. Thanks to faithful people like you, we are able to continue producing context. You can write to Crossroads, PO Box 5100, Burlington, Ontario, L7R 4M2, or visit crossroads.ca to learn more about our programs. Context Beyond the Headlines invites you to an exciting new season. This year, we're expanding our reach with a brand new podcast that will explore the interaction between faith, justice, culture, ethics, and society. As we move forward with this brand new season and the launch of this brand new podcast, would you consider partnering with Context financially? It is because of the generosity of viewers like you that we're able to continue to tell the stories that matter.